This is Food First Michigan on News Talk 760 WJR. Sponsored by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food secure state. And by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome back everyone and thanks for listening. It's kind of fun to do the impossible, said Walt Disney. It always seems impossible until it's done, said Nelson Mandela. And nothing is impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible, said Audrey Hepburn. It might be time to wake the dead because the impossible is looming before us. There is a perfect storm brewing regarding food security in Michigan. The USDA programs that support agriculture and provide food for food banks to distribute are slated to end. The lack of progress of any federal legislation to provide nutrition to the scores of those still unemployed and underemployed are directly linked to the higher than normal food insecurity rates in Michigan. The inflexibility of the federal program to feed students will be a direct challenge for our friends at Michigan Department of Education and our food bank network once the school bell rings across the state. Sherry Welch, senior reporter for Cranes Detroit Business, covers the business of nonprofits, and she is our guest today to tease up for us a story she is writing about the perfect storm that is headed our way. Join us in just a moment. Welcome back, everyone. As promised, Sherry Welch, senior reporter for Cranes Detroit Business, joins us here on Food First Michigan. Jerry, say good morning. Good morning, and what an exciting show this is going to be. I, I, I just can't wait for people to meet Sherry. I've known Sherry for so long and you know, have felt like she's been a comrade in many ways, but certainly uh, very diligent in what she does, and uh, I just can't wait for our listeners to meet her. Well, Sherry Welch, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking time out, because I know you have deadlines today. <laughs> I do. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate you guys having me. Well, it's a fun thing. You know, Sherry, we started this show about three and a half years ago, and uh, we wanted to change the conversation about food insecurity across the state. And uh, one of the things that uh, Jerry says, you know, and we've been doing this show so long now that some things he says, I think I said, and, you know, we get it kind of, we just blame each other or steal from one another. But I think one of the things Jerry said is you can never solve a problem if you don't believe it can be solved. And I think that um, that's one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on with us because uh, your area of expertise and your writing with Cranes um, is, is really powerful. But before we get in and, and kind of peel the layers off of that, tell us a little bit about you because I know you're a native Detroiter, but you love the UP. So... <laughs> Well, uh, yep, I am a native Detroiter. I'm actually, uh, both my parents are, are native Detroiters, and so obviously I am. But uh, I'm one of eight kids. Uh, I don't know. We grew up in Detroit until I was about four. Um, by the way, I'm a number five, well-adjusted middle child, in case you guys were wondering. Mm. Um, <laughs> but That'll we, come up later. <laughs> <laughs> we, we moved to, uh, you know, just, you know, very uh, working class suburb, Warren. 
when I was four years old and they never stopped bringing us into the city. I mean, that was fun for eight kids floating into the station wagon with mom and dad. We'd go down and, and, you know, fish off Belle Isle. We'd see the Grand Prix, you know, cars roaring through the streets of Detroit. We'd go up in the elevator at the Run Sun to, you know, see the Christmas lights downtown. So, you know, they, they kept the city, you know, their memories of the city alive for us. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's very rewarding for me now to be part of telling the story of Detroit's comeback. Yeah, that's powerful. That's really powerful. And you are telling that story. And Jerry, you and Sherry have, um, have collaborated, worked together. Um, she's uh, dug nuggets out of you that you didn't know you had when it comes to explaining <laughs> this work that we do. But it was nice to read about. I mean, you know, I just want to say, uh, before we get into all that, though, I want to hear, um, how did you decide to get into journalism? I mean, what took you down that path? Oh, see, this is what I get for, for using you as, a, as one of my topics for conversation, isn't it, Jerry? You know, this right, is going, exactly this is, right. <laughs> which, yeah. by the way, one of my favorite conversations ever, if you listeners have never read it, go, go look up the uh, conversation with Jerry Brisson and my, you know, most mild mannered person you could ever meet, funniest guy. And, you know, the vow of obedience kept him from becoming a capuchin. You'll have to read more <laughs> in our story about that. But one of the funniest things I've heard. Um, actually, it, it's a little bit of a circuitous story myself on that, Jerry. I, I, you know, for, again, eight kids, you know, mom and dad, station wagon, two dogs, et cetera, the, the pop-up camper, northern Michigan was vacation for us. I mean, we took one or two big vacations as, as when we were younger, but, but that, that was. I, I have a lot of family who lives in northern Michigan, so that's my, you know, that's just close to my heart. And uh, when I went away to college, I went to the UP. I went to Northern Michigan University, one of only two schools in the state at the time with Michigan Tech that had a water science program because I had my heart set on becoming a marine biologist. Now, I fairly understand that you have to leave Michigan to become a marine biologist, <laughs> but, but that's where I was going to start. You know, the whole in-state tuition stuff, eight kids, you know, very much working class family, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I, you know, really enjoyed it until I got knee deep into chemistry and I decided, you know, I wasn't sure if that, that was my favorite, if it was my forte. I really loved the biology. But, you know, when, when uh, two professors suggested I either double major or switch majors into English, I gave that some thought. <laughs> I liked it better than chemistry. So I did switch. And, and I honestly, I, I have my dad to thank for some of that because... You know, as kids, uh, we always had the two, two different publications. We had so many publications in our house, but we had two that we always had to, we were required to read by my dad. He, every now and then he'd say, okay, you know, you'd line up eight kids, you know, by age, whatever, and say, you know, you have to read an article in the Reader's Digest and an article in the Catholic Digest. And then, you know, I want you each to write, depending on your age, a paragraph summary on each or a page summary or two page summary. And we're all going to get together and discuss it. And you could hear the collective groan, of course. <laughs> I just groaned. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, we, we had like multi-hour conversations. But, you know, I credit my dad because he helped me sure. you know, learn to think and to write and to speak. So, um, yeah, that was uh, not a hard shift in college, you know, shifted to English. And then all of a sudden decided, uh-oh, what does an English degree do for you? If I'm not going to teach, what am I going to do? And uh, I had all these memories of my dad pecking away on his old Corona Smith typewriter and writing letters to the editors because he got into he dabbled with journalism before he became a father and <laughs> and he had to work for a living. Mm. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I shifted to uh, journalism, got really active in my college newspaper and in the uh, largest daily newspaper in the UP, the Mining Journal. And uh, yeah, ooh, that's did all, yeah, that's yeah, I know, big. right? <laughs> did all that before uh, I landed at Cranes a couple years later. Wow, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing it. I mean, I think that's the, you know, so many of us end up where we are on that path of, I thought I was going to do this and I ended up doing that. So, uh, and as you talked about my past, you know, looking to become a Capuchin, but ending up <laughs> in this basic needs work now for over 30 years, you know, it's who, who to thunk it, right? But that's the way life goes. And great I think it hear. makes it fun. It I, does. I think there's over 70%. It's like 73% of people, when they graduate with a bachelor's degree, never end up working in that field. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's pretty high, right? And so, yeah. um, at, at least Sherry ended up working in that field. So, um, you know, happy you're one of that that minority percentage <laughs> there. Well, thanks, Phil. But, but yeah. you know, again, I had to switch degrees to do that. So. Yeah, right, right. You were ahead of the curve, <laughs> as normal, as normal. So now you're the sen you're a senior reporter for Crane's Detroit business. And um, and so, you know, you went from the, the what is it, the mining journal? Gazette. In <laughs> the Gazette? mining journal. Yep, the yeah, mining that, journal, right. Yep. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mining Journal in the UP, and you know, I mean, Cranes is obviously one of the premier publications. Um, so that 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 was a that's a pretty good. I, I'm not saying it's a big jump. I'm saying it <laughs> looks like progression to me. Hey, I had a when I was writing for the Mining Journal, and I was just a stringer. I was just you know freelancing while I was holding down other jobs and finishing college. But hey, I had a big story, you know, back when way back when the. Uh, the Uper Dome or the Superior Dome, you know, large world's largest wooden dome in Marquette was built. We wrote a oh. story about about how it couldn't be used for events because of, you know, the structure and you couldn't rig lighting structures, et cetera, et cetera. And the Associated Press picked that story up. So, you know, wow. you, you can't poo-poo the mining journal. You know? No, no, no. I, 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 that was not my intention at all. But I was really celebrating you where you're at today. <laughs> I appreciate it, Phil. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, um, look, this probably seems like a good time to take a quick break here and then come back with you because uh, you're you're writing a story that you're going to tease up for us that obviously has something to do with food security, the topic of Jerry and our show. So uh, let's come take a break and we'll come back. She's Sherry Welch, senior reporter for Crane's Detroit Business. That's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're all three back in just a moment. Contact the Food Bank Council of Michigan at fbcmich.org. Now back to more Food First Michigan with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. And our guest, Sherry Welch, senior reporter from Crane's Detroit Business, and I love the tagline here. Uh, you're covering the business of nonprofits because Jerry and I are right there. I mean, if you don't run your business well, you won't have, you won't be around to have impact, and that's so important. I really appreciate that that perspective. So, um, yeah. So, I'm, thank you both for being here. Of course, Jerry has to be here every week, but. Uh, <laughs> We're Glad thankful to be that here, you're. Phil. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for you're with us, um, Jerry. You guys have worked together on uh, some pretty significant articles through the years. 
Well, yeah, and I would say that one of the things that, that has, you know, benefited us and I think benefited the community is that we do get in touch with each other, you know, fairly regularly. I mean, you know, just to say what's going on and is there anything going on that, that the community should know about. And, um, and of course, Sherry is writing from the perspective of nonprofit business. Uh, but as it turns out, there's an awful lot of nonprofit business that we do, and and so it's all it's it's been sort of an ongoing thing to to just be in touch and to make sure that the key issues are coming out at the right time in the right way. So I know I've appreciated that a great deal. Um, and so now, I mean, how, how this conversation got started was just from a touch base, you know, what's going on? The, the pandemic has been a pretty important thing. There, Sherry's written from a lot of different perspectives about the different nonprofits and how it's affected them and, uh, and what it means for the community as a result. And so we were, we were talking about, well, what's happening in the food space? And we're getting to what we're calling the fourth wave of reality and so that's how we got here today and how we you know decided maybe we should just talk about this on our show so with that i guess sherry i'll say this what are you learning and and what do you feel like you can tease up for us well as you said uh jerry the fourth wave and and i'm probably telling telling you guys nothing nothing new here but this fourth wave is interesting um Hasn't, hasn't seen a lot of, uh, you know, public coverage, I don't think, but we're talking about the food programs, right, in the schools. So when kids head back to school in September, um, the federally funded programs shift back to, you know, regularly scheduled programs. That is, you know, the National School Lunch Program and the Breakfast Program that's in place every year in the schools for children who are lower income. They come from families that are lower income, so they qualify for free or reduced you know, cost lunches and breakfast. So we're talking about that and, and about the fact that, you know, as we shift back to these, you know, regular programs that have been in place, you know, prior to the, you know, pandemic, you know, as you know, with pandemic, the summer program was, was extended and that allows, you know, as, as, as I understand from the Michigan Department of Education, the summer program allows, you know, providers like yourself, gleaners and other emergency food providers to, um, step in and help provide food and seek some federal reimbursement for that. But, uh, you know, everyone, all children can avail themselves of that food or, or their parents on their behalf, I should say. But uh, I, as I understand it, when we shift back to that school program, the regular school programs, those will only be open to children who are enrolled in the district. So if they have, you know, a little brother, sister at home, you know, who might be one, age one, age three, parents can't pick up food on their behalf anymore. So we're creating a new gap as we shift back to the regular school programs. That's right. And it's so important that people understand all of these dynamics. You know, in the midst of something like um, the pandemic where you have changes and, and those changes are reflected in unemployment numbers and in, you know, the, the d debates going on at, at the legislature and, and with the administration. And it, it can be all very high level on a some, to some degree. But in our world, it's faces. It's people with faces, right? It's people that we see. It's people who are hungry. It's people who don't know how they're going to feed their families. And, and 
you know, it's chaotic when, when you switch from thing to thing and it used to be this and now it's this and, and they don't really understand why is this the way it is. And so it's, it's so important to try to bring some clarity to, you know, this is what's happening in the world around you that affects you. And then we hope by bringing attention to something like this new gap that you talked about, that we can get the attention of the decision makers and have them go, wait a minute, you're right. We weren't thinking about it that way. We were just trying to get back to something like normal and avoid unintended consequences. So, I mean, there's a lot of other pieces to this too, but that's all part of the picture and why it's so important to have people reporting on it and letting people know, hey, this is what's really happening. Well, I, I think another important aspect to, to draw out, you know, Jerry, is the fact that, you know, early on during the pandemic, you and I talked and you know where I always go, you know, tell me your budget, how are you guys doing against budget? Because as you said, you know, and Cranes recognizes, you know, covering nonprofits, um, we can't have a, a solid nonprofit sector or each organization can't operate and have real impact unless they, their financial house is in order. But I asked you early on, you know, we're talking about all this stepped up demand as the pandemic really, you know, settled in in Southeast Michigan. And I asked you, how are you, how are you funding this? And you said, well, we're hoping donors will, will stay with us and they'll understand the need. So it was sort of a, you know, what's the saying, putting the, the car before the horse. But you had to meet, you know, you like so many other nonprofit providers, I hear we have to meet this need and we'll, we'll have to figure that out on the money side. Um, it's a, that's a particularly, you know, that that's, we need someone to do it. So we're grateful that you're doing it, but you know, there, there is consideration, uh, to, to make sure the financials are there and it, it's an, it becomes an interesting conversation when, you know, we're creating gaps with public policy and pushing it down to the nonprofit sector. I see it again and again and again, and, you know, across different areas of the sector. Um, but someone always thinks, you know, well, someone will take care of it. And it usually falls to the nonprofit sector. But you have to run like a business or you won't be there tomorrow to do this work. Well, it's, you're so right, Sherry. I mean, uh, if, we, if we don't have that... Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, we don't have that priority of, of, of really running our business well. We won't be around when people need us most. Um, so that's a, that's a huge point that you make and a value that we share across our feeding uh, food bank Council of Michigan network for all seven of our Feeding America food banks here in Michigan. But the 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 other side of that on the on the other side of just kind of blending the what the conversation y'all have had between business and the logistics of people having access to food during this pandemic and when particularly when schools go back to uh, restart is transportation for the families. Uh, the logistics of having to get to the food that's only going to be in the school building uh, is going to be a tremendous roadblock for people having access to food, even though some of it's there. And so I, I know that Jerry and them have really looked at this, um, again, from a business standpoint, and, and how do we, and our other food bankers across the state, and how do we really begin to meet this need that's that's going to, that we anticipate is going to be pretty significant as we move toward fall and winter. Yeah, Jerry, you were projecting something like, you know, even a, at minimum, you know, 15%, I think, Phil, Jerry, I heard you both use, use that 
you know, just minimally as we head into fall and into, you know, through the winter into January, you're projecting at least a 15% increase in food insecurity here in Southeast Michigan and maybe statewide, Phil. Um, yeah. And it doesn't sound like much when you just say, oh, 15%. Oh, you know, well, we can figure that out. But you start adding up the pounds. And for like your organization, Jerry, you know, which could, you know, neck and neck with Forgotten Harvest, right? For the largest food bank, food rescue yeah. in, in, in the state, let alone in Southeast Michigan. Um, you start adding that up and we're talking about uh, creating a gap of, you know, roughly a million pounds of food a month, you know, with a 15% increase by January. And that's coming at the same time as you're seeing the federally supplied food drop, you know, stores and, and, and the allocation programs all dropping significantly. So, it, it, you know, once you start stacking all this together, you can start to see what's coming at us. And I don't know, would you guys, I'm going to throw a question to you. Do you think it's even more, you know, is this this fourth wave, as you're calling it, as the you know school gets back into session and we return to, you know, those regular in-school meal programs, uh, is this, could this even be, you know, and as the, as the federal programs, the subsidies start to dial back, you know, all of the relief programs, the unemployment bonuses and the SNAP benefit expanded, you know, benefits out there. Are we looking at, you know, how does this compare to when the first, when the pandemic first started? Could this be even bigger in terms of the need out there and whether or not we can meet it? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a couple aspects to the answer. The first one is most people wait as long as they can before they ask for help. And I know that's not something that people think about when, when you're not in that situation, but most people try to make ends meet on their own before they ask for help. So whenever we have any kind of change that affects people's income, we know they need the help, but they don't just show up right away. They, they, they borrow money, they, they cut their expenses, they, you know, cut corners in various different parts of their life until they get to a point where they say, well, I really have to ask for help. I don't know how I'm going to feed my family if I don't ask for help. Then people start coming in. So, so what we're expecting is because a lot of the help that was there, you know, starting really in April. So if the, if really things started to shut down in March, you started to see relief in a big way starting in April. And at that beginning, we saw a lot of people be, for two reasons. One was just the panic of it. I mean, people who didn't need extra help were panicking. They were going to the store. They were buying out all the toilet paper. That still strikes me as odd and funny, but it is what people did. But the stores were running out of certain kinds of food. It's still a little bit inconsistent what you can find in the store necessarily because people just want to make sure they have enough, period, right? So you've got that going on. But then you also have... It takes time once those relief packages get passed to get people enrolled, to make sure they get it. And for some things, it took six or eight weeks. So in that initial period, we saw a surge, right? A lot of people who needed help. All right. Then it kind of levels off as people get to some kind of normal. They've balanced their life. They, the, most people, again, really try not to ask for help unless they need it. So what we expect is... As we now see the end, though the end of the of the financial support in a number of key ways that you've already mentioned with EBT and with unemployment, some of that is going to come back, uh, but but a, a significant chunk probably won't. We will see a, a bunch of people running out of money and and not having not being able to make ends meet now. So that that's already happening. 
but the numbers aren't going up yet. But they, we expect, just based on the pattern of this, they'll start going up in, in September, probably by mid-month, and that'll continue going up as long as the relief packages aren't passed. So, so then, then we wait and see what happens. So I know, doctor, we got to take a break, and you're telling me, Jerry, we got to pay the bills of our own here. So, all right, okay, let's, we'll let's come back the- to this. <laughs> Let's do the business of our business right now and uh, take a quick break. We're back with Sherry Welch and Jerry Brisson in just a moment. Food first, Michigan. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. And Sherry Welch, senior reporter for Crane's Detroit Business. And uh, you guys are talking about this huge gap uh, that is potentially going to affect our work. And, uh, and Sherry, I think you made a great point, is that when, when entities don't step up and take their responsibility, a lot of, that, a lot of times that is pushed down onto the charitable sector. And, um, you know, it's, that's a, since COVID started, our network prior to COVID averaged about 2.6 million pounds of emergency food per week. During COVID, our network has averaged 4.5 million pounds of food per week. And if you uh, add just 15%, you know, when you're buying something and it's 15% off, you're not that impressed. But when you got to scale up 15%, when your 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 base is 4.5 million pounds per week, that's about 667,000 pounds more food each week, and uh, that's that's you know a little frightening to me to be <laughs> to be to be candid about it, and um, and I'm I'm confident that we're going to be able to do our best to meet the need in the community, but it still gives me pause for concern. And, and this is happening trust. all over, right? All over yeah. the country. Yeah, this is not a. This yeah. is not unique to Michigan. It is a national uh, dilemma. Yeah. Right now, it's, it's trucks, dilemma. Trucks and drivers and pallet jacks and people at distributions. I mean, you all those pounds turn into um, real work, right? I mean, so if a truck can hold about fifty thousand pounds of food, it puts that six hundred thousand pounds in perspective in terms of just how many more trucks and drivers you need to move things around. You know, and that's week, 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 week. So, you know, you're you're it really does add layers of of complication and cost when you when you don't have well, when you don't really know what's gonna happen, how do you line up an extra ten or fifteen or twenty trucks? I mean, it's like, well, when do you pull the trigger? When do you start? Oh, wait, spending I thought the money? those tr- I thought those trucks were free, Jerry. Yeah, right. And just sitting <laughs> out there waiting in our parking lot. Yeah, we got them lined me. up. Right. <laughs> yeah, and you're not even talking, Jerry, about the. You know, you and I had this conversation about how do you make facility decisions, right? Yeah. When and right. you told me, you know, we, we're, we're we've got you know an infrastructure to supply X X millions, you know, pounds of food per per week or per month. And when we start to see stuff ramp up like this, you would hope some of the need is temporary. You know, I don't think it contracts that quickly, but I know you and, and Kirk Mays at, at Forgotten Harvest, we've all you know talked about facility issues and the need to, you know, during the during the pandemic, you have all had to uh, get additional space to accommodate 
huge yeah. uptick we've already seen, let alone the one that's coming at us, right? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's not like there's a bunch of buildings that are just sitting there waiting for us either. You know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot that goes into spaces. They have to be food grade. They have to be um, AIB ready, which is, a, which is a rating system for how clean they are and how safe the food is. I mean, the biggest obligation of, of emergency food distribution is, in fact, food safety. It's the single biggest responsibility that we have. So I don't know if you see these recalls, like when they're recalling the onions of late and, and other things. You know, we've got to find all that stuff that's come through our network and get it all back. So now think about that 15% again. Because you're talking about all that work, right? All the activity that it takes to make sure that the food supply is both accessible and safe. And uh, all very important, and you cannot shortcut any of those things. They have to be done expertly and, and you know, all the time, right? So that's the, I mean, that's the, the, I guess our point of view on policy is if there's going to be consequential decisions that are going to impact our work, we just want to be part of the conversation so that we can say, if you do this, this is probably what's going to happen out here, and we got to make sure to take this into account so we don't have unintended consequences of policy decisions. And a lot of policies get decided quickly um, because of circumstances and situations that, that, you know, if there were more time, I think there'd be less, um, uh, what, do, what do we want to call it, unintended consequences, right? And so, you know, that's why it's so important to be on top of these things as they happen and why, you know, we were grateful to have this conversation with you, Sherry, because this is a time when people need to pause and say, okay, virtual school has consequences to kids and families. One of those consequences is some of those kids aren't going to get food now. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen to those families if those kids don't get food? And, and it also increases stress and other things in the community. If you're the parent of that child that's, that you're going, okay, how am I going to get food for this kid? That, that changes your life too and not in a positive way. And so we just got to make sure that all of these things are thought through as policies are being decided and things are happening. And, and one of the clearest ways to do that is to make sure people know. And Sherry, that's what you're in the business of. And we, we appreciate that a great deal. So how do you feel about your role in all this? I mean, do you, do you wake up in the morning and know you're making a difference? You know what, Jerry? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yes and no. Um, I try to make a difference. You know, you never know for, you know, for sure what you're doing is making a difference. But I think that, um, I've said this before, I think, you know, that reporters are a lot like folks in the nonprofit sector. I mean, we're, we're, we're idealists and, and we try to make a difference. That's why we do what we do. It's not because we're making, you know, commanding the highest salary out there, but, and, and, and everybody doesn't always love this job. You don't, you know, some, you definitely get a thrill out of, of different aspects of, of reporting, you know, watchdog is for some people, some people it's completely lifting up the great things going on in the community. But um, I do, I do like this job. I, I, I appreciate the fact that, you know, I can hopefully make a difference with some of the things that I'm covering. Um, and, and, you know, before I came to Cranes to cover nonprofits uh, 16 years ago, I was with another Crane uh, publication, another Crane Communications publication, a little tiny one, nobody knows, Reverend Plastics News. But I'll tell you what, it's really well known in the rubber industry. And uh, I covered automotive suppliers. So I used to be able to tell you everything, you know, that was rubber or 
thermoplastic elastomer on a car. <laughs> that was way back then. But, you know, um, when I had the opportunity to, to move to Crane's Detroit business, I got to tell you, I was a little bit worried about covering nonprofits. I thought they might be a little bit dry compared to, you know, the, the automotive suppliers, the mergers and the acquisitions and the dot-com boom, the dot-com bust. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. But then I thought, well, now I can finally write good things about, you know, the CEOs of the auto companies and stuff like that. Or, you know, because the suppliers are always telling me these stories way back when. But um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a super, as you guys know, it's, it's a really, really interesting industry. I mean, not that folks in other industries don't have passion for what they do, but the human element, it definitely rears its head again and again and again. Every time I report one of these stories, you know, it's not just business. There's so much of the human condition involved in, this, in the nonprofit sure. sector and in the work that you're all doing. It, it just makes it so much harder because people are trying to do the right thing, but you know, we, we're just here to remind everybody you cannot leave your business hat at the door. You've got to run like a business or, you know, and it's, it's, maybe it sounds cold. It doesn't, it's not supposed to, it's just meant to say you have to be an ongoing concern in order to have impact. And that's what you're all trying to do. So yeah, I, I enjoy my job. I like to hopefully make a difference a little bit with some of the stories I do and, and keep everyone informed. So yeah. Yay. Well, how do we? How do our listeners connect with Sherry Welch at at Crane's Detroit business? Oh well, they can anytime. I'm I'm on pretty much email nonstop these days. It's you know my email address open to anybody, everybody who wants to drop me a note. It's s w e l c h at crane dot com, and crane is c r a i n, no s. So, yeah, that's the best way to get me. But you can also follow me on Twitter. Um, and I've got a Facebook page, more active on Twitter, but but I do have those. And I've got LinkedIn. Anytime anybody wants to reach out, I, I welcome hearing, you know, what you think we should be covering, what you think of the latest news we've covered, a- anything like that. Totally open and, if to they, and if they want to read you every week, all they have to do is subscribe. Correct. We like, like Jerry and I. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And if they want to see you, apparently they have to go to the UP. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if you're not hearing from me for a while, I'm hiding out. And that's where I go. That's, that's my home good. away from home. That's good. Hey, Sherry, thanks for being with us today. Uh, you're our first media personality to ever have on Aww, our show. I'm honored. Yeah, you're going on the wall of shame. I mean, fame. Uh, well, I appreciate that, Phil <laughs> and Jerry. I really appreciate the invitation today and, and getting a chance to uh, see you both in person. It's nice, right? During the pandemic, yeah, so much virtual. Absolutely. Nice to see faces again. And uh, to, to talk a little bit about the work that we do at Cranes and, and covering the nonprofit beat. So thank you again. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, Jerry and I are going to come back in just a minute to wrap up this show. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this article that Sherry's writing that's going to come out soon. When's it coming out, Sherry? Oh, it's coming out Monday. But if you're a subscriber, <laughs> Phil, you can get it on Sunday. Hey, thanks, Sherry, again. We're going to check out thanks here, a do a little business back in just a minute. Jerry, a quick thought for uh, Sherry Welch. 
Well, nice to have people like Sherry doing the work they do. I mean, so much of our work depends on getting the word out, as you know, doctor. And mm. uh, Sherry, in her role, that's what she does. And I think she does a nice job of making sure she covers the story from all the right angles and talks to a lot of people and gets that perspective and puts it in front of us. So great to talk to Sherry. She is really a delightful person. And you can you can feel yep. it just, uh, you know, coming out of her as she starts talking. And so it was great that we could introduce her to our group that's listening to us and uh you know what a privilege well i think you say there's lots of smart people coming alongside of us in this mission of food security and media has a role and certainly sherry is fulfilling that role yeah it's it's critical it's critical well it's time for a little food for thought when Jerry and I started this show on WJR years ago, my opening monologue quoted St. Francis when he shared his prescription for tackling the impossible. He said, start by doing what is necessary, then what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. From money banks to food banks, from farmer's field to our distribution trucks, from the legislature in Lansing to the lobbyists in D.C., and from policymakers everywhere to the produce in our warehouse, it will be all hands on deck this fall and winter in Michigan to help us do the impossible. And we'll start by doing what is necessary, and that is keeping food first, folks. Food first. Food First Michigan, presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.